Welcome to Season 3 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes In Defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 23 is entitled, John's Letter to the Church of Ephesus. In the book of Revelation, John writes seven letters to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Of course, they are real letters to real churches in real places in real time. However, as all other images in Revelation, they are universal and need to be read collectively because they transcend time and place. They apply to Christians today as much as they apply to the early Christians. The letters are written to the church collectively, but to the saints individually. Though we may preach the gospel to others, we should never impose our will upon others. We may only impose our will upon ourselves. We may not be able to change others, but we may always change ourselves. The letters have four parts. Virtues, vices, warning, and promise, or promised blessings. In the Holy Scriptures, language is very precise. In this podcast, Linda and I will discuss John's letter to the church of Ephesus, found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The letter begins with an introduction. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. In the Holy Scriptures, the number seven appears often. It is used for a number of reasons. Among those are to express completeness, perfection, and holiness. For example, this is symbolized by the creation of the earth. God rested on the seventh day, following the six days of creation. The seventh day is considered a holy day, a Sabbath of the Lord's, a day of rest, a day of sanctification and worship. It is Christ who is speaking to John, and he holds seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Both are symbols of light and truth. Christ, though unseen, walks among the saints of God. By holding the seven stars in his right hand, Christ is holding the church in his right hand. In Exodus we read, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Exodus 15.6 In John we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. John 10.27-29 The seven golden candlesticks are a temple image. The temple is a house of holiness. The candlesticks are part of the temple imagery. In the book of Numbers we learn, Speak unto Aaron, and say unto him, When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light over against the candlestick. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps thereof over against the candlestick, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this work of the candlestick was of beaten gold, unto the shaft thereof, unto the flowers thereof, was beaten work, according unto the pattern which the Lord had shewed Moses, so he made the candlestick. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel, and cleanse them, 
and thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purifying upon them, and let them shave all their flesh, and let them wash their clothes, and so make themselves clean. Numbers 8, 2-7 It appears that the seven churches are under the protection of Christ himself. The candlesticks represent the tabernacle of God carried by the children of Israel through the desert, as well as the temple first erected by Solomon. The temple is the house of God. Notice the clothing of the priests of God. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be acceptable before the Lord. Exodus twenty-eight thirty-five through 38 Obviously, there are more than seven churches at the time John wrote the letters. Therefore, we can assume that John is using these letters to represent the entire church established by the apostles. The purpose of the letters appears to be to perfect the church. That is the primary role of the apostles. However, not only did John the Revelator write to the church of Ephesus, the apostle Paul also wrote a letter to the Ephesians. Since the letters would have been relatively close together, it is useful to also consider the contents of Paul's letter. For convenience, I shall just reference a few things. Paul establishes their relationship to the entire church. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 19-22 Paul compares the church to an holy temple in the Lord. It is builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul strongly emphasizes the necessity of unity. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 4:11-16. Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were sometimes darkness. He then admonishes them, 
But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 8. John uses each church to identify particular virtues and particular vices found in the church at this time. In writing to the church at Ephesus, John first lists their virtues. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. However, the church of Ephesus is not perfect. In the letter John writes, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Paul also focuses on the vices of the Ephesians. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Ephesians 4, 23-32 Paul then admonishes the church of Ephesus. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Ephesians six eleven through 18 It appears that they are not being valiant for Christ. In John's letter to the church of Ephesus, John comes down hard on the Ephesians, placing a curse on them if they do not repent. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. That is an incredibly harsh curse. When Christ threatens to remove the candlestick of the church of Ephesus out of its place, he appears to be threatening to remove their exaltation, their position. 
their candlestick would be removed from the temple, meaning they have broken their everlasting covenant. This brings to mind the words the Lord gave to Isaiah. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Isaiah 24, 5. With the removal of the golden candlestick, their star would also be removed from his right hand. To be removed from the Savior's right hand is a very bad sign indeed, and that is compounded by the fact that they have broken their covenants with the Lord. Because the number seven represents wholeness, the threat is not just to the church of Ephesus, it is to the entire church. But it also applies to the individual who does not repent. Often with a commandment, two things are included. First, a blessing is pronounced upon those who keep the commandment, and second, a curse is pronounced upon those who do not keep the commandment. We have already heard the curse. Now notice the wonderful blessing. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7 The tree of life is a familiar symbol in many churches. We first meet a reference to the tree of life in the book of Genesis. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Genesis 3 22-24 If taking of the fruit of the tree of life is the promise of eternal life and exaltation, why were Adam and Eve forbidden to eat of the fruit of the tree of life after eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? First of all, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is not the tree of life promised to the church of Ephesus. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden stood in opposition to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The trees in the Garden of Eden were actual fruit trees, as tangible as an apple tree or a pear tree. They bore tangible fruit. Adam and Eve were unique not only in being the parents of humans, they also were unique in being the only ones on earth who had immortal, physical bodies. Had they not eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they could have lived in the Garden of Eden forever. Before eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they could freely eat of the fruit of the tree of life. It was the fall that brought death into the world. When they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, entropy began, and they were subject to death. When the Lord commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he said, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, 16-17 How is it that after eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam lived nearly a thousand years? Notice the wording. In the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Peter explains the conundrum. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, 
that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Second Peter 3, 8. Adam and Eve die in the day. In other words, they did not live past a thousand years. The lifespan of man was gradually shortened to the point that today one-tenth of that is considered very old. So we see that the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil changed the composition of their bodies and made them subject to death. On the other hand, the composition of the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden would have reversed that process and given them immortality. Immortality in the Garden of Eden was safe. But immortality in a fallen world placed Adam and Eve under the power of Satan. Death is critical to our salvation. Only through death can we escape the clutches of Satan. Christ not only paid the price for our sins, but he also brought about the resurrection so that all of us could have a physical body as immortal as our spirit. The difference is that the fruit of the tree of life that Jesus offers gives us the promise of immortality and eternal life with him. There can be no greater gift than that. When Christ speaks of the tree of life, he is not talking about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. He is talking about the true tree of life, described so eloquently by John in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2. And he shewed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruits every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In Revelation twenty-two fourteen, John adds, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. In Proverbs, the tree of life is compared to wisdom, righteousness, and wholesomeness, all virtues of Christ. Christ is the true tree of life. That is the only tree of life that we want. John tells us, For whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John three fifteen through 16 Those who are seeking the fountain of youth, such as Ponce de Leon in St. Augustine, Florida, are seeking eternal spiritual death. The last thing we want to do is to live forever in mortality. It would be worse than the Strollbrugs of Swift Gulliver's Travels. Only eternal life with God is acceptable. John describes it beautifully. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John four thirteen through 14 Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.